Welcome to Upbringing, where Hannah and Kelty, twins, mothers, and works in progress. Upbringing is a movement that empowers parents to grow up alongside their kids for sanity and social change. Through this podcast, speaking and coaching, we focus on our personal work as parents, the awareness, intention, and approach needed to raise amazing humans while we also get some shit done. Join us to radically redefine kids' resistance as an opportunity to nurture skills and values like consent, nonviolent communication, emotional intelligence, body positivity, and respect. We attempt this by practicing powers beyond control, evidence-based tools that protect our kids' personal freedoms, support their skill building, and better align with how we roll as people. To us, this is the practice of parenting, when we can choose trust over fear, connection over control, and progress over perfection. We're not just raising our kids, we're raising ourselves. Let's show up and grow up. Hannah and Kelty, welcome to Parenting Forward. Hey, Cindy. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm so excited. Can you start by telling us a little bit about you and especially the work that you do in this world and kind of what you want to see in this parenting space? And I was wondering if you were sisters, which I found out that you are indeed twins. So that's been really fun. My husband is a twin. So I have a lot of thoughts about twinhood because I, my poor husband, you know, I psychoanalyze him all the time. <laughs> like, like, okay, is this a twin thing? Is this? Oh, we could talk about that all day. Sure. Probably more easily than we can talk about our business selves, which <laughs> it's like not our superpower talking about upbringing, but it is our passion to to be doing upbringing, which is a couple of years old, two to three years old. We like to introduce ourselves as speakers, parent coaches, twins, like you mentioned. We usually say like tired ladies. Mm-hmm. And we empower parents that the last several years feel so lucky doing so to learn to use powers beyond control in their daily discipline with their kids for what we call sanity and social change. Wow, that's so that's such a great mission statement. So you've been doing this for two to three years, but obviously you've been... How long have you been parenting? Yeah, we've been parenting going on... It's eight years, just eight years this past month. My daughter turned eight. Kelty's daughter is six months younger. And then my son is going to be six soon. And Kelty's son is six months younger than he is. So we both have two boys who are five, six-ish, two girls who are seven, eight-ish. And I think that's when upbringing truly began though, because we we were just winging it like we were everything else in our lives at that point. Kelty's children, both of them were very unlike my children. And we came at this from a twin perspective being like, we're twins, we're the same, we're going to parent the same, this is going to be great. And then we realized that our, our kids were very different based in their temperament and their nervous system. And Kelty's were more challenging to her and to me to be parenting than mine were. And I think that's what started upbringing was realizing that we couldn't take this one-size-fits-all approach or instinct even and put that on a unique individual like a kid. And that kind of sent us in this long learning journey of of reading and talking and trainings and studies and got us to where we are now. And then folks have just joined in for the ride. We like to call it a movement at this point of folks who are realizing that gosh, those the hardest moments with our kids can be incredible opportunities just to you know, build their skills and build our relationship, but to really work on, on our own trauma and our own healing through that process and our own joy ultimately, right? Yeah, that's so, that's so resonant to my experience. And I feel like I 
also just, yeah, I think you just maybe hit a point or maybe not even a point, but you just come to a realization in the parenting journey that, oh, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. (laughs) And then embarking on this journey of learning and sort of inviting people. I feel like that's what I do. I'm just learning from people like you people I host in the podcast and inviting everyone to join us in this learning journey and growing and evolving. So it's just so wonderful that we're in this together. And I recently just heard that something like we're all parents to society's children. And I love that because I've always thought of my parenting work as not just for parents, but just anyone who cares about children. So I love that we are all parents to society's children. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of what you're saying is also your work. It's yeah, this is just kindred spirits because here at Parenting Four, we talk a lot about recovery from growing up in fundamentalism, high control, authoritarian religion. And one of the many reasons it's bad to grow up in this way is because these spaces, they construct very rigid and small boxes for humans, including kids to fit into. You have to be small, compliant, wear certain clothes, say certain words or not say certain words and have these certain values and practices and the list goes on. The problem is, as many of us find out, is that none of us fit into these boxes 100%. So we're always slicing pieces off of ourselves or at least hiding them. And that's just no way to thrive. So for me, like I thought I was really good at being evangelical. I was good. I was compliant. I learned to speak the language and, and fit in. And it wasn't until I left and started to find my liberation that I discovered that I had forced myself into those boxes because it was a matter of survival. I thought I had to fit into that box in order to have literally salvation. So it was like I was under threat. I was coerced into being that person. And as I'm growing beyond, I'm realizing how much bigger I am than any of those constructs. I share all of this personal biography is to say that I love that you guys are helping parents raise kids to be exactly who they are. And especially the ones who struggle more to fit into whatever boxes society may be constructing to squeeze them into. So for example, you talk a lot about spirited and sensitive kids, which I feel like somehow (laughs) that I'm both spirited and sensitive when I don't know. Do you find that people are both? If they're sensitive, they're also spirited and vice versa. What are some of the ways that you see that present in the world? First, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that about your history and your goals and your own personal journey of liberation. That just means so much to me and I can so resonate with that. And I just want to say that so much of your work and so much of our work and on this big wave of conscious parenting in alignment to our values is really about giving our kids the right to be free and like you said, to be exactly who they are and and in doing that, freeing ourselves and healing our own wounds. And that's like where the real magic is. But mm-hmm. can go tell about the sensitive spirit of things. Oh, there's so many ways to think about it. And I love, Cindy, how you brought up the term good. So, mm-hmm. you know, good, bad, right, wrong. This is these labels that we can really easily internalize and that most of us have grown up with in inside and outside the church. And I think that the reason we have identified spirited and sensitive, which are not... We didn't create those words. They're out there in the ether. People talk about them all the time. But the way we apply them to our kids is instead of saying good, bad, and making a judgment like this, let's talk about children and adults on a spectrum of diversity related to their sensitivity and their spiritedness. Thinking about 
the sensitivity being how they receive input from the world, how they experience. Sensitive folks are spongy, right? Things are brighter. Things are louder. We feel things deeply. We feel things longer. We think about things very deeply, right? Things profoundly impact us where for some other people, it's just they don't give it a second thought or they can move on really easily or they didn't even notice. So that's the sensitivity is how we experience the world. We've got all these little orbs and everybody has a different number of receptors to the world in that way. And that's a good thing. So sensitive is a word that Kelty and I grew up with that was like, oh, you're so sensitive. So we're reclaiming that and saying sensitivity is a human right. It is totally natural, normal, necessary. It just is. It's kind of like we have a right to our emotions and sensitive is just feeling emotions. Right. It's it's not something to control. It's just literally how our bodies are built and the, the way they interact with the world is they see things, they hear things, they touch things, they taste things, they feel things at a certain level, right? And then the spiritedness is the the flip side of that coin. That's how we express how we're feeling about that experience. So for example, Kelty and I were very sensitive kids, but we didn't express our anxiety or our anger or our joy or our energy as largely as other kids did. For example, Kelty's children are very sensitive, right? And they experience the world deeply and you have that feeling based on their behavior. They cover their ears with loud sounds, They notice, oh, this sock just cannot go on. It doesn't feel right. But the way they express that is also very spirited. So that means... What does that mean, Kelty? You describe it. Yeah, it means (laughs) it means louder, longer, more persistent, more resistant, more insistent, just bigger, longer, more. I would say just more. And, And with the spiritedness, we're also reclaiming that word and saying... There's nothing wrong with being spirited. It literally represents the spiritedness, the spirit within you that we want to be preserving and nurturing. We like to think of the sensitivity as our inner wisdom. So what we know about ourselves in the world. And then the spiritedness as the inner authority to express it. So much about the work we do at Upbringing is giving people permission to become aware of their own inner wisdom and authority as parents as they're working to understand and work with their kids' inner wisdom and authority as well, their sensitivity and their spiritedness. Yeah, I love that. I have sensitive kids and I just find that they teach me so much. I like how you put sensitivity on a spectrum because I'm realizing that there are things I'm so sensitive to and I I feel like, how come no one else? Like, why am I so... I feel odd because this thing impacts me so much. So one thing for me is I can't watch anything violent on the screen. And so like Game of Thrones, I can't watch any of that oh, stuff. with you on that. Yeah, it just impacts me so much. And it's hard because people talk about them (laughs) and you want to be a part of that cultural conversation, but I just can't really. Yeah. I I think it helped me when we started learning about right HSPs and people who are highly sensitive. And I felt like that must be the way that I perceive the world. But then I'm quickly realizing that people are just sensitive to different things. So there are things that other people are very sensitive to that I get to be the one that's, oh, that doesn't bother me. And so, yeah, there's different things that we're sensitive to and it's how we can teach each other about the world. I love that. But I think it can get really tricky when we're talking about our kids because we're really programmed to to have that not, oh, everyone's on a diverse spectrum of sensitivity and spiritedness. No one taught us that. All we know is that kids should act a certain way. Kids should need certain things. We have this invisible expectation 
board in our minds, maybe based on how we were raised or what the first sibling required and needed or how they express themselves in the world or what our sister's kids do or say. And so it's really hard when we begin parenting these kids who are maybe more sensitive than other kids or less sensitive than other kids or more spirited than other kids or less spirited than other kids to not think immediately go into that kind of binary thinking that I think really easily leads us to feel shame or blame that there's something wrong with us or parenting poorly, or there's something wrong with our kids and there's, there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it asks us to just meet our kids where they are. That's just mm-hmm. the biggest challenge and the biggest gift is to just look at our kids as perfect, the way they're showing up right now, how they're expressing themselves in the world, what they're needing, what they're sensitive to, what they're spirited about, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's about acceptance and trust in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of breaks my heart to hear you say that you were sensitive kids, but you didn't express what you were feeling. So you were sensitive, but not spirited. Would you say that's who you were? Yeah. I think we spoke up now and again, and I think we were lucky to grow up in a family that was much less punitive than many of the families of folks we work with and friends of ours. So we feel very lucky in that way. But I still think even in traditional families, there was still a level of hierarchy and of control. And for those of us who are sensitive, just like you had said, Cindy, that you did all the good things. You knew basically how to play the system to survive. That's and right. that often you know, leads a child to not speak up, to hold feelings in, right? To limit themselves and grow smaller because they want to feel loved. They want to feel safe. That's mm-hmm. every child's prerogative. That's what all of us are, are more imperative is to feel safe in our bodies. I know this kind of like totally useless argument that Hannah and I have sometimes where I'm like, the poor spirited kids out there that are being punished for being too spirited. And Hannah's, but what about the quiet, sensitive ones? They're missing out. They're being over-controlled. They're being put into a box just because they get go along with it doesn't mean they're fine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're okay. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I Yeah, I definitely feel that. And And then, so then what happens is I think I suppress a lot of my spirit, literally. I suppressed my spirit when I was young because I was so, it was so important to me to be the good and compliant child to to survive. And then as I moved away from that space, I began to express my spirit. And the problem is when you are allowed, when you're given space, I don't like to use the word allowed because I don't think, I feel like it's a human right for kids to just be themselves. (laughs) They shouldn't be allowed to be themselves. But yeah, when kids are given the space to express their emotions and spirit, there's also a process, I think a very natural, developmentally normal process of learning how to regulate that. And so for those of us who didn't get a chance to even express those emotions, some of us are learning to regulate that in adulthood, whatever age it is that you begin to start expressing those things. And I know, I feel like that's what I'm going through, even though I'm so much older, I feel like in many ways, I'm doing the work that I should have been doing when I was a child. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's why we say yeah. we're all growing up together, but it is it does feel like such a catch-22 sometimes thinking, how am I supposed to support my kids being their free little selves and support them in, in regulating their emotions when I am struggling to even do that myself? It's really yes. we're in a partnership <laughs> trying to do it together. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing for me, but I think my kids are even better at it than me. 
And it's, um, how should I say it? Because I, I think I'm proud of myself for giving them that opportunity to regulate that they're now maybe even better at regulating themselves than I am. So it's, uh, it's like happy, sad. Sure. That would make sense because you have so many more experiences layered on and so much more neural conditioning that you're needing to rewrite kids. They're just, they're so pure. They catch on. They, they have no hesitation to authentically express themselves. We always say kids are born activists, right? For themselves and others. And I think that it's so pure and it's so gorgeous. And then it also is just comes into conflict, just like you said, with our own insecurities, with our own lack of experience, with our own trauma. And that can be really tough. We work with a lot of women, especially who having kids is what kind of brought so much of their own trauma to the table. Yes. Where they literally never yelled in their entire lives until they had a toddler. They never screamed or threw something, right? Until their four-year-old did something wild and pushed them to beyond their capacity. And so I think there's so much shame involved that that a lot of folks bring into this being like, I, I feel like I need to be growing and being myself. And this is the first time I'm seeing it in the parent-child relationship. But I know that it's going at the cost of my child being themselves. So who is it? Me or my kid? Which one do I need to be honoring? Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of times we feel triggered by our children because it's like, how is it that you have the audacity to express your emotions? I never got to. So you're just seeing that play out. It's almost like you see your child and then you see your younger self right beside her. And you're like, how dare you have this freedom to be who you are? When I was your age, I didn't have that freedom. And I mean, it's a feeling that we still have even now is just that feeling of injustice or resentment for me personally, that my kids get to express themselves a thousand percent how they need. And I need to be working to not do that to them because of the nature of our attachment relationship. And that's, and we know all the reasons why we need to be trying to comport ourselves neutrally, lovingly with, with patience and with self-regulation. We can't always do it, but I think you're touching on something that I feel often, which is why do they get to be like this? Why do they get to make messes? Why do they get to say no? Where's my turn? Where's, what about me? I know. So what do you think are some of the ways? Because you know, I very much resonate with that. We do get into this opposing teams, but of course we are on the same team. And, and that's the paradox of it because at the same time, I sometimes feel resentful that my kids have the audacity to be as free as they are. Of course, I want that for them. That's also my goal for them to have that audacity. I gave them that or I encouraged it. So of course, we don't want to be in this power struggle. Yeah. What are some of the ways you feel have helped you remind yourselves that you're on the same team here and that this is a good thing and to wrestle with your resentment in a constructive way? Yeah, I think first just acknowledging that the feelings we have as parents, there's no shame in them. And most of us were conditioned to experience shame for having negative quote unquote feelings or feelings about another person. And so I think that letting go and saying, this is fine, can help us get curious to look into why that is. And I think oftentimes we can feel angry and resentful because we really haven't experienced the grief of our childhoods yet. We haven't said, wow, my childhood sucked. I need to cry about that. I need to maybe talk to a therapist about that. I need to journal about that and really accept and acknowledge the limitations of the childhood instead of projecting anger onto our child in those kind of jealous moments. 
And then I think the secondary factor isn't just about the past, it's about the present and saying very often we feel that resentment, like you mentioned, Kelty, because we're just feeling overwhelmed and helpless. And we're saying, I'm serving you all the time, child. I'm allowing you to express your emotions all the time and I'm not getting that. And rather than expecting our child to be meeting our needs, like within that parent-child relationship when it's not healthy to do that, it's a really good reminder. Feeling that resentment, feeling that anger is a really great reminder to say, I'm having some needs that aren't getting met and I don't have to push them onto my child. This is not my child. Again, this is something I'm projecting. How can I get my needs met outside that relationship? I need to talk to my partner if I have one. Do I need to go to a therapist or an organizer who can help me get my stuff together a little bit and streamline so that I don't feel so burnt out and then kind of project that onto my kid? Yeah, or even smaller, do I need a breath of fresh air? Do I need to... Step out of the room, take a personal time out. Mm-hmm. Do I asking ourselves what am I needing in these moments is the question. And that's what leads us in those moments of power struggle, like you began chatting about a little bit, is saying, how can we make everything with our kids in those moments of conflict where we've been conditioned to think it's theirs or it's ours? There's a winner, there's a loser, someone's right, someone's wrong. And to mm-hmm. say instead, everyone has needs and everyone's needs matter. And we're going to try to get everyone's needs met to the best of our ability. That's uh-huh. all is right put that on a poster and put it up. <laughs> <laughs> so good oh it's so good okay let's move on and talk a little bit about manners and and I know you address this in in your in your space and but I feel like I feel like the thing about teaching kids manners is really about balancing raising our kids to be free to be themselves and societal expectations, because as much as we want to smash those boxes that society has constructed, not all constructions are bad. In fact, they're necessary. We have to have them. If we didn't have social constructs, we would not have a society. A society is a social construct. So we have to have some common, agreed upon rules. That's what makes a society function. So it's like we do need for our children to learn the difference or learn how to navigate their individuality as well as, well, being a good citizen. So I feel like when we talk about manners, it's it's not just about saying please and thank you or table manners or whatever. I feel like the bigger question is about that. Like, how do you be yourself fully in this world that has these a lot of time unspoken and sometimes spoken agreements on how we should behave in connection with one another. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I think you're to, to us, you're describing the self-awareness versus socialization conversation. So we want our kids to be socialized, to have all the manners, to be good friends, to be good neighbors, to be good lovers, to be good students, all the things to know the social mores, to succeed socially, not just for society's benefit, but for their own. I think oftentimes when we're coming up on these manners conversations with our kids who are not using them at all in those early years, especially, we can kind of fear spiral and those automatic negative thoughts come into our mind. They're going to be all alone. They're going to be made fun of. They're going to be shut out. They're not going to get that job promotion. They're going to be all alone. All these types of things happen. And I think we have to remember that socialization is incredibly important for kids and it will be shown to them and taught to them in basically every other institution in their lives. Like even at the TV, like everybody will be teaching them and they will understand what the expectations are for them, those external expectations. But what about self-awareness? 
What about not just learning about external expectations, but what about internal needs? And this is what we love talking about so much because this can very often be undervalued, underrepresented, underseen in our role as parents in saying our job is not to be their number one socializer, teacher, person. Everyone else gets to do that. We can drop that off of our job description, generally speaking, at least as a number one priority. And instead say our number one priority is focusing on our child's self-awareness, their inner needs, their inner desires. And if they can understand themselves and know themselves and trust themselves, naturally they will do better act better, more appropriately, more adaptively, all of that will happen. Yeah. But I think oftentimes we really put the cart before the horse and we say, let's really go heavy down on what to say and what to do to meet everyone else's expectations. This is the role you play. And we forget that, oh my gosh, but what's going on inside them about understanding why they want to use their hands instead of a fork Mm -hmm. or understanding why they had a big feeling and exploded instead of asking more politely. So there are two big teaching aspects and and self-awareness is is really... I think when you're leading into that self-awareness, Hannah, you're talking about the deeper, more fundamental learning that can happen. And what's honestly being lost when we're focusing so much on that external and snapping our fingers and needing these kind of like perfunctory behaviors from our kids. And I think that it's fine to tell our kids, when I do this, you say thank you. When you need this, you say please. When you hit someone, you say sorry. Great, say it. And maybe they'll repeat those words. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll super resist those and it'll cause a huge cascading situation that you weren't necessarily expecting. But I think what's at play here is a deeper value that can happen, not from like I said, snapping our fingers and demanding certain words or certain behaviors from our kids, but building context within them and within our home. And that involves modeling our butts off, saying, thank you, please, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I need help. All of the things that we hope our kids will say. And building a family within that vulnerability as opposed to just demanding it of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like a lot of times when we demand these manners of our kids saying, saying please and thank you and all this stuff, especially when we go outside of the family, it's more to please other people. We understand how much it means to certain relative if you were polite and if you said certain things. And so at that moment, I feel like you're caring more about that relative than you do about your child. You want your child to behave in a way that meets that relative's needs at the cost of your child's really. And I've done it. I'll be honest. I've done that to my kids. I'm, I'm like, just, it's not that hard. Just say the words and it makes them so happy. And <laughs> why don't you just do it? And, and But the priority is clear is you're placing the priority on this other person. And I feel like, why do we do that? I think for me, I know why, because I grew up to be a people pleaser. I want to please other people at the cost of my own well-being. I was socialized to do that. And I don't want that for my kids. I want them to care about their needs just as much as, as other people. And so I feel like, yeah, it is my job to help them prioritize their needs, really, because there's going to be so many voices in this world that tell them not to do that, that tell them not to, especially if you have a girl, maybe not so much for boys, but yeah, there's so many voices that tell women to sacrifice themselves for others. So I don't want to add to that. In fact, I want to counter that as much as I can while I have the time and the opportunity to do so. 
while they're in my home. I love that. I, th- I feel like you're describing the role of the advocate that we can be as parents. And I think that what we usually are is my role is the hall monitor and the manners police, the etiquette person. And we forget that we are not beholden to other people and make, meeting their needs and making them comfortable in our role as parent. In the role as parent, we're an advocate for our child in meeting their needs and helping them understand their motivations and what they're needing. And so I think we, we easily just really get confused about that. But I like how you allude, Cindy, to the idea that when you are meeting everyone else's needs, you were conditioned to feel safe doing that. So then when we're all of a sudden taking this new role to meet our child's needs, that can feel very unsafe to us because it's at the expense of our own safety. Mm-hmm. We're not meeting others' needs anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's a real process to let go and redefine that safety. Yeah. Wow. That's a light bulb moment for me. It's true. It's almost like I feel unsafe if my child doesn't perform pleasing other people. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind yeah. of allude to to that, that feeling of crisis we get into parenting in front of other people is a topic we're talking a lot about on our Instagram right now too. But And the question that comes up a lot, which is, so you're just going to let it all go? So you're just going to let them be like a, an entitled, selfish kind of person? And I think that so much of our work, all of us, when we're able is to try to work that middle way. So instead of clamping down and demanding the please and thank yous and hellos or being like, grandma needs this, just do it. Or instead of letting it go and just being like, oh my gosh, I feel so terrible because I'm trying to advocate for my child, but I know I'm disappointing my own attachment figure and this is such a mess. That's where we try to work in the middle. That's where we talk with our kid beforehand and say, you know what I've noticed? Have you noticed that grandma loves a formal hello and hugs? Have you noticed that when grandpa gives you something, he's really waiting for you to say something? What is it? Thank you. Yeah. For some reason, that means so much to him. That makes him feel really good. I know we don't usually do that necessarily all the time together. I've just noticed it's something they like. So just FYI, if you're feeling it, go for it. If you're not, that's okay too. Do you feel like just now when you're talking about this feeling of unsafe, I'm just thinking maybe people's reaction, because people, I think in parenting spaces, they respond like that a lot. Um, if you do this gentle parenting thing, or if you treat your child with respect, then it's that fear spiral. They're like, they will turn out to have no self-control. They will turn out to be feral. They will turn out to be, I don't know, degenerates. There's, it, it always goes to the extreme. And that's the pushback is always very extreme. And I wonder if it's because it's this feeling of unsafety. Like we can't, if we let children behave in this way, it makes us feel unsafe. So we must control them. Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's relying on the child having all of these skills rather than saying, I'm actually incredibly unskilled at finding a way of supporting my child that's not over-controlling or dominating. And I think that's why people automatically go to the fact of saying, if I don't control them, we're going to live in chaos. Mm -hmm. It's going to be totally wild. And we were like, yes, it will be if you don't build the skills to, like Kelty said, find that middle way, find those loving limits. And most of us, we never were able to advocate for ourselves as kids. So we don't even know how to set personal boundaries. We don't know what loving limits are as parents, let alone to help our kids develop loving limits. So like you said, Kelty, with we're all growing up together, we're building these skills along with our kids and parents who are on the precipice of starting to realize this and starting to think about going about things in a different way can feel like it's literally you're walking into an abyss or falling off a cliff because you can't see anything between the two extremes. So much 
is trusting. You were really explaining fear. And I think that fear is what holds people immobilized. It's what keeps them controlled by other people. It keeps them quiet. It keeps them not growing, not changing. So trusting is a process of literally just walking through these situations and trying something different than before. So about boundaries and about not being raised to draw those boundaries and so not having the tools to help our kids do that. I think that's maybe why you talk about consent a lot as well because I feel like consent-based parenting is really about helping our kids draw boundaries from as young as a baby, babyhood, because they are determining... You know, my friend Kay, who was in the podcast in the last episode, she describes boundaries as what's okay with me and what's not okay with me. And I think when kids are young, that's what we're teaching them, like helping them figure out what's okay with them and what's not okay with them. And I think honoring that from as young as possible is what's scaffolding their growth and learning to draw good bound to be a good boundary person or to have a self-awareness of, of their own identity and how that is distinct from everyone else's and, and really enables them to have good connections with people, with their peers and beyond as they grow. But I feel like, yeah, so let's talk about the logistics of consent because it's weird, right? To ask a baby, is it okay if I change your diapers? Like the baby can't. <laughs> yeah, I feel like when it gets really baby, toddler, it gets a little bit grayer in terms of executing consent-based parenting? Like how have you handled questions about those kinds of things? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think consent is a, a way of moving through the world. It's a practice, but it has to begin as a mindset. And I think you alluded to that, Cindy, about that dream we have for our kids of saying, we want to raise kids who understand that their needs are important and that they can say yes and no to things. They have agency and autonomy over their bodies and their experiences. And they can respect others' rights to say yes or no. And then they also can acknowledge and work with others people, other people's rights to say yes or no, exactly. But I feel like it's just a correlate. I feel like if you know that your body boundaries are to be respected, I feel like they just know that other people should be too. I don't know, maybe. I think so. I think that, but that's what we talk about all the time is saying the, the way our kids learn consent is how we treat their bodies. So if we treat their bodies with consent, we're normalizing consent culture in our homes. So kids learn by not by being told what's right and wrong. They learn literally by experiencing and moving through the world. That is the deepest, most fundamental learning a child can experience or a person can experience is by doing, not by being told, not by being shown or whatever it is. It's by experiencing. So I 100% agree. But I think that the traditional hierarchy that's in our homes, most of us didn't have consent-based childhoods. Most of us, it was a, there was a hierarchical nature. The parents' needs, the parents' agenda, the parents' expectations always came before or at the expense of the child. Then we come into the parent relationship ourselves and we are that quote-unquote top dog. We are the man. We are the leader. And we have to decide, how do I go about using this power? This may be the most power I've ever had in my life is the power I have over my child. And how do I want to use it? Do I want to use it to get my needs and my agenda met, even with the good intention of and responsibility of parenting this child? Or can I be thinking about it as how I wish I had been treated and think about doing it a different way to raise a different person, right? I love the definition that your friend gave in the last episode mm -hmm. and the way that we talk about it, especially even from infancy, we can be creating a consent culture in our family basically by working with instead of doing too. So even when our kids are too young to say yes or no, I think just jumping out of it for a second... 
so much of these parenting conversations about consent right now are about getting the thumbs up from our kid about tickling or about kissing or saying, you don't have to go kiss grandma. Or you can say, I don't consent to my friend touching me this way. That is all amazing. And I think, but our work at Upbringing is about busting that open to literally every interaction that we have with our children. Because creating consent culture is really about honoring our our children with a fundamental respect for their needs, that okay and that no. And that can happen just by building, like you said, Hannah, the brain space, the awareness of that conversation, even before we can actually interact conversationally with our kids. So that's even just saying, "May can I change your diaper? Do you want to lift your bottom up a little bit? And saying, now I'm going to pull the diaper onto your, through your legs. Do you feel that? So we're explaining, we're working with our kids as opposed to just silently mm-hmm. picking them up, sniffing their bottom, slapping them down on the table, Chain, putting the diaper on, tossing the other one and putting them back down on the floor to waddle away, right? Yeah. Giving Consent culture is giving information that's inherently scent-based. Mm-hmm. Or our, our little babies rolling around on the floor. I, a lot of parents, like you said, Kelty, will just walk in and start talking to them and playing with them. And that's anti-consent, in my opinion, that maybe that baby's in flow. That baby's attention is elsewhere. And thinking that we get to just take their attention and focus it on us at any time is in in some ways, if you think about it, anti-consent. And so we can practice that with a baby and coming up quietly, noticing what they're doing and then saying hi and seeing, do they want to pay attention to us right now? They have agency over their body and their attention. There's so many different areas that that we can be thinking about in this consent-based context. Mm -hmm. And then in those moments, a lot of people say, but the diaper has to get changed Mm -hmm. or they have to put the sharp item down or they have to hold hands to cross the street. They have to know. Mm -hmm. And I think those moments or they have to have the medicine or whatever it is, those moments where we feel we're breaking consent, that's okay too, because we do have the ultimate power, but we're going to use it in a way that considers our privilege. And that's about creating that consent culture through our talking, through our connection, through you know working with them instead of doing too. So we'll say, I'm so sorry, you don't want this medicine. We've tried, we've tried to work through it. And you're really saying no still, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to give you the medicine now. Okay. And then you really didn't like that medicine. I am so sorry. You didn't consent for that medicine to be given to you. And we had to do it. Or I had to pick you up and put you in the stroller. And you wanted to run across the street. It wasn't safe. And I had to move your body without you saying it was okay. And I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm. That's so good. I think it's just all very new to us. I think that we're still figuring out what consent-based parenting looks like. And I think because it is a mindset shift, like it's not, oh, we're going to switch to a new form of formula in this generation. And we're talking about shifting a whole mentality. And it means unlearning a lot of what we learned. It means healing from a lot of how we were raised without consent. And that's like really slow work, I think. And so I think we need to give ourselves time as a generation of parents, as we learn what it means to raise our kids with consent. I think that I do see signs of people becoming very insecure. Like they feel like, oh, I I had to pin my baby down to, yeah, administer this medicine. I really violated their consent and I've messed them up forever, right? Like I hear fears like that from parents because they they want to be consent-based and they're, they're conscious of it, but they don't yet quite know what that means yet. And so I think we're all like that. We're all still figuring it out and practicing and seeing how to apply these ideas in our everyday parenting lives. And I think that's okay. I think we can support each other. And to say, you know what? No, our kids 
also have a lot of resilience. No, you pinned your baby down one time. They're not going to be messed up forever. I think we need to encourage fellow parents like that. We're allowed <laughs> to figure this out. This is worth figuring out because it's, I think it's so important. And so I think we are laying down work too for future generations and future parents of what it might look like. And I think maybe there will be a little bit more equilibrium or, or we'll feel more comfortable with this. It'll become more normalized. And then we won't have so many questions about what was this violating their consent? Was this not? And yeah. We're pioneers is what you're saying. I think so. We're pioneering mm-hmm. consent culture and it's not going to be streamlined. Kelty and I always say progress over perfection. Not overnight. And, and that That's idea right. of saying is there's some, some sort of invisible consent police out there right, who's exactly. watching and waiting. That is just literally the culture that we've all been conditioned and we're trying to avoid creating in our home. So yes. we got to check our thought process and be like, oh my God, I did that. I'm in trouble. No, that's my upbringing. That's my conditioning and my binary thinking. And remembering, I love that you're saying, give grace to the process that is learning consent as we're learning to practice consent, mm-hmm. right? there, it, it can just be a conversation, which is, mm-hmm. as you said, really a re- relationship dynamic shift. And that doesn't happen overnight. And the beautiful thing that Kelty and I like to say is in parenting, there's always tomorrow or five minutes from now. (laughs) We get so many opportunities to practice with our kids. This isn't a one and done and you messed up and you failed and Mm -hmm. you're off the island or whatever it is. This is is an ongoing process and Mm -hmm. go easy on yourself in that way. We have so many clients or people coming to us through our DMs just saying, oh my gosh, I've just come to this. I'm having such shame. I'm having such guilt. I feel like I was doing everything wrong. I feel like I've screwed my kid up. And we're always just saying, no, that's not. It's never too late to begin thinking about this, even not doing any of it, but even just thinking about it. That's a huge step for a lot of people. And in talking about that, people think, oh, well, I've took a few steps and and then I screamed at my kids and, and went two steps back. And then I was doing pretty well, but then I shamed my kids and sent them to time out. And now I went back five steps. And what we always say, like you were hinting at Hannah is this is not a staircase. This is a river. We're on this river. We are flowing forward. Your podcast too. We're moving forward. We're always moving forward in our growth. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And I think we need to remember the most important ingredient in a successful relationship is not perfection, but repair and connection. And we always can repair and connect with our kids, even after some bad moments or uncomfortable moments or moments of making choices that we've regretted. And that makes me think of resilience, Cindy, where I I think so often we're like, oh, my baby or my child can become resilient either by me protecting them completely from any challenge or upset or trauma. Or we can flip to the other side and say, the only way they're going to be resilient is if they experience challenges and trauma and they get through it. And I think it's very easy to get people so polarized very often men say they got to go with the hard way to become resilient. And women say, I have to protect them completely. And if anything happens to them, I've been failing my job. Mm-hmm. And so much about what we talk about is saying, there's that middle way of saying, of course, we want to protect our child from harm. We want to parent the best we can. But children do need natural opportunities to experience struggle. And like you said, Cindy, it's not the actual situation that necessarily makes them resilient. It's the support they have after that or before that. It's the conversations we have to recreate that security and heal from each of those micro traumas with them. That's how they develop resilience is that they learn how to heal through challenges. I want to wrap this up by going back to talking about sensitive kids because I, like I said, I raise sensitive kids and because I've learned 
I've learned and about a lot of things of how to treat children with gentleness and kindness. And then I look back to the ways that I treated my kids when they were younger and knowing their level of sensitivity now, <laughs> becoming aware of that, it's horrifying really because I inflicted some harsh parenting practices on a very sensitive child without realizing both that I was being harsh and that they were sensitive before I learned a lot of things about them and about myself. But what has been really hopeful to me is I realized that sensitive kids are also sensitive to kindness and they're sensitive to repair and they're sensitive to connection. And so, yeah, I regret a lot of the decisions I've made with my sensitive kids, but I also know that the love and support and the repair that I've done with them is well soaked in there as well because of how sensitive they are. So yeah, I guess I want to just offer that as hope for other parents who may feel the same way I do. If they also have sensitive kids and have been harsh with them, that there is this chance, there's this chance for them to bounce back and to feel loved and, and supported and to develop their own resilience and to learn their own regulation and all those things. Like there's so much hope. And I feel like that's the beauty of being human is that we can grow and we can expand and we can heal. So I just thank you so much to both of you. This has been such a wonderful conversation and you're brilliant. I'm so glad that you do what you do in this world. Thank you for being at Parenting Forward. Can you let everyone know where they can find you? Thank you too. We just want to say like such goosebumps from that sensitive mm -hmm. kid moment. It was just, I love that. Mm -hmm. I think it, it goes against that binary thinking again that you win, you lose, you survive, you fail, all of these things and saying, no, we're human and, and we're always evolving. We're always changing. And again, that's that's based in trust rather than fear. Mm -hmm. And so just what you were saying just had so much trust in it. And it just felt so good for me to hear. And I think that it feels good for other parents to hear too, to give them permission to trust in yeah. the, their child, in themselves, in their relationship and over time. Something we tell parents, you are doing the best you can with the skills you have right now. Your child is doing the best they can with the skills they have right now. We all are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we focus so much on mantras. So the voice that we're cultivating, our own inner voice, and we're reprogramming that inner voice from that binary thinking, that shame-based thinking into more open-minded, secure thinking that can help us move through challenges better. So we offer a lot of those on our website at upbringing.co and also on Instagram by the same handle, upbringing.co. And then we also help folks with getting that phrasing started. So they're like, okay, I'm thinking this new thing about my child. Like this isn't an emergency. They're not out to ruin my life. I'm a good parent who's doing her best, all of these things. And now that's my inner voice. What's my outer voice? What do I say when I'm starting this new way? I'm trying to use powers beyond control. So we offer a lot of helpful phrasing as well. Just examples to see what resonates with you and to just get it that conversation between you and your child started. And so that's also available on our website and on our side-by-sides -sides and reels on Instagram. Beyond that, yeah. you can find us for one-on-one -on -one coaching or small group coaching through our website as well. And we love just connecting with people about their spirited and sensitive kids, about their struggles as parents, about big feelings and challenging behaviors, and just this big parent adventure. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for the work that you do. I'm just so glad that you are offering this and I hope people take advantage of it and go find all the resources that you have available. Thank you so much again for being on Parenting Forward. Thank you. Thank We're you, such Cindy. fans. Thank you.